Let's go to Philippians chapter 4. As we continue in our study of this treasured epistle, Father, we pray that you would arrest our attention, that as we come to your word this morning, we would remember who it is to whom we come, that this is your word and not the word of man, that these things were, though written by the hand of the apostle Paul, Lord, surely they are your word, and these things were given to us that we might know you, that we might know your will, that we might be sanctified and grown into the image of our beloved Savior. So we ask, Lord, that you would show us wonderful things from your law, that you would strengthen us in all that it teaches, and all of that to your glory. In Christ's name, amen. The title of this morning's message is Content in Every Circumstance. Content in Every Circumstance. Contentment is not a virtue that I hear very often spoken of, at least in our day, I don't know about you, I don't hear people talking about it much. It is almost really un-American to be content. Uh, The American dream has nothing to do with contentment. It has to do with achievement. It has to do with progress. It has to do with more. It has to do with uh, the new and the next and the seemingly necessary. Americans, or American culture anyway, has been called a culture of complaint And complaining people are not contented people. It's true not just for Americans, of course, this is true in general, that contentment is unnatural to the unredeemed human heart. Charles Spurgeon called it a cultivated flower. Among the thorns and thistles of this life, it is something that's learned in the Christian life. I've told you before, I've never really understood gardening. A lot of people love it, and I don't want to trample on anyone's garden here. Uh, But it always puzzled me as to why people would want to cultivate something that it seems like the whole whole task of gardening is to cultivate something that does not grow in in said soil or or, 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 uh, uh, (laughs) uh, environment, and we're seeking to do something that is unnatural. Well, that's the way it is with contentment. Contentment is something that... It is not natural to human life. And our passage this morning is a passage that speaks to the issue of contentment. And you'll realize as we go through here a couple of verses that are are very, very familiar to many people. They've often been used and misused out of context. And I trust this morning that by the time we depart from here, you will have a grasp upon them. And they will have their sanctifying effect on us all. This passage really is about the sufficiency that is to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at verse 10 together. We'll read through verse 13. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. 
Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity in any and all and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul has just finished, if you've been with us, giving a series of imperatives, of final exhortations pastorally to the Philippians in verses 1 through 9. He has called them to godly attitudes, he has called them to godly thinking, and he has called them to godly conduct. We have been using the word cultivate throughout this series because that's exactly what needs to happen. These things must be cultivated in the life. And as the Philippians were to cultivate them, they would then walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, and they would appear as lights in the world, being very different from the world. So he's been giving them pastoral instruction. He's been calling them to godliness of life. And as we come to, very, uh, to verse 10, it's, it's very tempting to say, just to keep things consistent, that Paul is calling them to cultivate a life of contentment. But he's not, at least not directly. The apostle would surely want for the Philippians and for us to uh, develop contentment in our lives if, if only by way of imitating his godly conduct in Christ. But there is a shift of perspective as we get to verse 10 and throughout the rest of the letter. It's not formal instruction anymore, but, but a very personal outpouring of thanks by the Apostle Paul. Pastoral exhortation has given way to pastoral encouragement, really, and it's given way to an expression of gratitude, particularly in these verses. Paul is, beginning in verse 10, very tactfully bringing this letter really full circle, back to something he alluded to, if you'll turn there with me, in chapter 1. Chapter 1 and verse 3. Paul said at the very beginning of this letter, I thank my God. His, his purpose right from the very get-go was to express gratitude to God and in his final chapter to the Philippians, notice what he thanks God for. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer, note this, with joy in my every prayer for you all. Well, why were you thanking God for the Philippians, Paul? Well, he says, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. The Philippians had participated in the gospel in a variety of ways, not the least of which they had helped supply Paul financially with the backing that was necessary for that ministry. They had preached the word alongside of Paul. They too had participated vocally in, in living out the gospel and then speaking the gospel in their community and some perhaps even in Rome. But Paul really has in mind here their financial participation as we come to chapter 4. 
You'll recall that Paul is on house arrest. He is chained to uh, an elite Roman guard. And you remember that he has to cover the expenses of his imprisonment, his, his rented quarters. He has to pay for that. He has to pay for his food. And recently, the Philippian church had sent another gift to Paul, which was then the occasion for writing this epistle to the Philippians. They had sent by the hand of Epaphroditus a gift, some money, some support for his need. You can see this in verse 15. You yourselves also know, Philippians, this is chapter 4 and verse 15, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. They had repeatedly sent gifts to him. You look over at verse 18. I have received everything in full. I have an abundance. I am amply supplied, he says, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, acceptable, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. So the Philippians had sent a financial gift and perhaps clothing and other practical necessities that the apostle Paul had by the hand of Epaphroditus. And it's in light of this gift for his support that Paul closes this letter with an expression of heartfelt thanks. There's so much rich and helpful teaching in this section that we are not going to rush through it. Not only about godly contentment, but as you'll see in the weeks ahead, that there's stuff here about Christian giving, about the nature of Christian love, about fellowship, about a Christian perspective of earthly goods and temporal circumstances. All of that is, is in here, and all of it kind of by way of implication from the very personal things that Paul writes. So, let me say this just bluntly. This passage is for everyone. There is nothing here for any particular individual, but for all of us as we come to this. And I, I, I will promise you that this will be a means of great gain to you if you will heed the apostle's example here. Well, let's get started then in verse 10 with Paul's joy in the Lord expressed. Paul's joy in the Lord expressed. Joy, again, bubbles up out of the life and the pen of the Apostle Paul as he writes to these people. And he says, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. There was great rejoicing in Paul as a result of the gift that the Philippians had sent. It's interesting, the verb is passive. This is something that happened to Paul. There was something that led him to joy. He was brought to great joy. What was it that brought him there? Well, he says that, that really the reasons for his joy were twofold. We'll look first at the immediate cause of his joy. There was this very tangible expression of love from the Philippian church. That was his immediate cause. That was the, that was the very thing that springboarded to joy in his life. Notice he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now you have revived your concern for me. At last, he says, you have revived your concern for me. That word concern is a word that we have come to a number of times in this epistle. It means to think intently about. Paul is saying, look, now at last you have 
revived your thoughtfulness again towards me. You, you have been mindful of, of me. Now I want to read that verse a couple of times to you. Look back with me again at verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your thoughtfulness of me. When I read that, when you read that, when you hear that, you think to yourself, is that a compliment or not? Is he actually expressing here gratitude or is this a manipulative statement? Is this an expression of gratitude that is more of a complaint? Finally, you've revived your concern for me at last. Took you long enough. How long did it take? Well, the reality is it's been about 10 years that have passed since the Philippians last sent a gift to Paul, at least that we know of. But I want you to understand this and to mark it. This is not Paul seeking to inflict shame upon the Philippians. That is not Paul's heart at all. In fact, it's the exact opposite. A significant time has passed since they had supported him in such a tangible way, but now they have sent another gift, but his heart is glad. He is joyful. He is exuberant with thanksgiving. And so when Paul says, now at last you have revived your concern for me, what he's saying is that that is the eager heart of a mother whose military son has been on a foreign field and out of contact for a long time, who then comes home and that mother greets her son saying, at last, at last my eyes can see you and I can touch you. There's something here that causes me to flourish and to rejoice. This word revived is a beautiful picture. It's used only here in the New Testament. It's one of a tree budding out after a long winter. If you drive down I-5 every year, we go down to the Shepherds Conference, we leave here where all the trees are barren, and you go down into the Central Valley and all of those almond trees or almond trees, depending on whether you're an almond farmer or an almond consumer, those trees are glorious. They're pink and they're white and they bud it out. And that is what Paul is seeing as he, as he writes this word. He says, your love is like a budding and a blossoming flower in the spring. Your roses right now have all been pruned, right? They're just sticks with thorns. But you know what's coming. The word is used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Ezekiel 17, 24, that that God is one who makes the dry tree flourish. For nearly a decade, there has been no bud and no blossom. But now he holds in his hand this However, Epaphroditus brought it, I presume, a a sack of coins. There was no Apple Pay. There was no cash. It was coins. Here he holds these coins in his hand. 
and his heart is buoyed up. The very evidence of their love and concern for him, and he's seeking, beloved, to affirm them, not to rebuke them. He wants really to set them at ease. They know it's been a long time. He knows it's been a long time. And he wants them to understand that he understands. Look at the rest of the verse. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now, at last, you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned. Nasby adds, before, which is right, but you lacked opportunity. He says, in effect, you were continually thinking about me. That's the sense of the verb there. You were continually thinking about me. I knew that, but you lacked opportunity. I know that you've never stopped thinking about me. I realize that I am precious to you in Christ. Beloved, what what an example to us the Apostle Paul is, yes? Ten years, think of it. And yet here's his heart toward these people, believing the best, knowing what is true in Christ. And far from being disappointed in them, he rejoices in them. So many people tend to turn on people, even within the church, so quickly if we don't get what we want and get it immediately and get it in a timely fashion. Paul doesn't allow his heart and his mind to to stew in bitterness. He doesn't pull up and start playing the victim card and develop this, this wall of resentment between him and the Philippians. No, he knows in spirit they are with him. And now, at last, opportunity has come to be able to get the support that that they wanted to give to him in his hands. Epaphroditus takes it to them. He even intimates this, doesn't he, in in chapter 1 and verse 5, when he says, from the first day until now. Paul knows that they've been with him in spirit. Paul just assumes their love. He assumed that it remained. He assumed that winter would give rise to spring and that it would bud again, and indeed it has. He understands that it was simply out of season. The tree was not dead. It was merely dormant. It was a matter of circumstances and not a lack of love. In fact, undoubtedly, it was a matter of divine providence. Paul never factored God out of the equation. There was no opportunity to give for whatever reason. It may have been that they didn't know of Paul's need. Perhaps their own poverty prevented it. Perhaps they didn't have enough money to give. Perhaps they couldn't get a messenger to Paul. Who knows? It doesn't really matter. What matters is that now Paul sees their, 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 their care and their love for him, and, and the point of all of this is that he's very grateful again, get this, for the experience of the fruit of Christian fellowship and their mutual participation in gospel ministry. It's not about the cash. It's not about the financial support. It never is for men who are faithful in ministry. It was what he was receiving as he received that money. It meant something else. It was emblematic of something else. It was emblematic of the fellowship that they shared in Christ. 
that as a family in Christ, his brothers and sisters had been continually mindful of him and now had the opportunity to express that love in a very tangible fashion. That was the immediate cause of Paul's joy, but there was a second more foundational cause and reason for his rejoicing. Here's the ultimate cause of his joy, and you've got to go back to the verse. Note very carefully, again, don't read it quickly. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. This is such an important lesson for us. To see with the Apostle Paul, with the eyes of faith, as he encountered Epaphroditus and the gift from the Philippians. You see, Paul's joy was not merely in the gift. It was not so much about the financial support or even that the Philippians had thought of him. What was his ultimate cause for joy was the recognition that these things were a reflection of the Lord's care for him through the Philippians. His joy was in the Lord. You see, that's the real connection. Is there was more to it than the Philippians. They they were the means through which the Lord provided for Paul. It was they who had thought of him. It was they who had sacrificed for his support. It was they who had sent Epaphroditus to Paul as both friend and courier of this letter and cash. But Paul understood that behind all of those realities and all of those actions was the invisible hand and the loving heart of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When he saw their thoughtfulness for him, he remembered that Christ had not forgotten him, but always keeps us as the, as the apple of his eye. And when he considered the sacrifice of the Philippians on his account to supply him and to feed him, he, he remembered the one who made himself poor, that we might be rich, Christ himself. And as he held that money in his hand, he felt the compassion of Christ and Christ's very provision for him as he sought first the kingdom of God. So you see what Paul is doing. He's looking through the broad lens with an eye of faith and the Philippians in their gift were the very hands and feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's exactly right. Who are we? We are the what? We are the body of Christ. That's not just a simple analogy that that God employed so that you might understand gifting, though that's important. Christ is our head. We are the body of Christ on earth. And if you grasp that, you'll understand a lot of things, particularly about persecution. They can't get at the head anymore, so they give body blows, right? That's what's happening. And here, Paul is employing this same kind of thought, that is, as he receives from the Philippians, what he sees is is the head. What he sees is Christ. At the blossoming forth of their concern, he understood that the Lord was behind it all. Or to put it another way, in material things, Paul saw 
spiritual things. In the love and the encouragement and the compassion and the kindness and the attentiveness shown by the church, he saw the goodness of of God, which is why he rejoices in the Lord. So Paul really, get this, is filled with a worshipful wonder that as he looks at the Philippians, what does he see? Well, he sees this, that by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no man should boast. The Philippians had been saved by grace. But he goes even further to see that in verse 10 of Ephesians 2, that the Philippians are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, that we should walk in them. No wonder Paul's rejoicing in Christ. These were the very things that Christ had ordained through his people and to the apostle Paul. And so it wasn't about Paul garnering some money to get more food or to pay his rent. It was about the working out of the glory of the plan of redemption in the lives of the Philippians for his own encouragement in the Lord. It's undoubtedly true that Paul is stating these things very carefully. It's, it's, it's not as simple as him simply saying thank you. He wants to make sure that he's understood in what he's really grateful for and what he's really pursuing here. It would be very easy, wouldn't it, to get the wrong idea in this thank you note. Paul could have presented himself as a, as a victim and, and, and in need and, 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 and deprived of material wealth and put a real weight on the Philippians to continue in their giving. It's been a long time since I've heard of you. It's about time. And you know, I'm counting the coins here, and, but he doesn't do that. Neither does he put the thank you for the money. This is intriguing, but he doesn't put it up front. He could have put that right up there in verse 5 of chapter 1. But that would have given a misconception too. Paul was not interested in the Philippians because they were his source of of well-being, his source of an income, Paul was genuinely and spiritually interested in the Philippians, and he wanted them to know that. So he's, he's being very tactful here. He's being very careful. It's ever the potential for a preacher to be accused of doing what he does for personal gain, and Paul doesn't want people to think that he looks at ministry as though it's a job. He had been accused, in fact, on a couple of occasions for just that, both in Thessalonica and in Corinth, it, it had been leveled towards by false teachers that Paul was doing what he was doing for the income that he was getting. They had challenged his motivations. And you remember that Paul did not take from those churches, though he had the right to do so, specifically to overcome that accusation. He worked day and night as a tent maker to pay for his own needs and for all of those who were with him in the ministry. It may be wise for a man at times not to receive from the congregation just to make the point. This isn't a job. In fact, Paul's going to go so far as to tell the Philippians that the joy he is experiencing, well, it isn't because of the gift at all. It isn't because of the money. 
It's about their mutual love for Christ. It's about their participation in the gospel. It's about Christ's personal and practical care. These are the things that caused him to rejoice. Paul is not a child who is, who is giddy over a, over a gift of money that he got. He's, he's, he's not a, a person who, who is worldly kind of eyeing a new gadget and thinking, man, what could I do with this? That is not Paul's heart in this. Paul is simply looking at the money, at the provision, as an expression of the love of the Philippians and, in fact, Christ himself. He is a mature man, and he lives for greater things than the material wealth of this world. Well, that's Paul's joy. I want you to see Paul's secret to contentment learned. That's our second point in verses 11 and 12. Paul's secret to contentment learned. Look at verse 11. He writes, not that I speak from want. I'm grateful for your gift, Philippians, but I don't want you to think it's because I needed it. Gene Getz says, quote, How different from some Christians who methodically work at giving the impression that they're always in need. Paul was not a victim of circumstances. He didn't want to come across that way. He was not grumbling. He didn't want to come across that way. His mouth was not filled with complaint, and he didn't consider himself, truly he didn't consider himself needy. You might say it this way, that Paul trusted God, not gold. Paul had it right. And you say to yourself, when you think about Paul in his circumstances, how is it even possible for a man to have that kind of attitude when he had been deprived of just about everything? He had no freedom. He took no vacations. He didn't enjoy good meals I mean, isn't that the stuff that life is made of? In fact, he was under arrest and he was awaiting capital punishment, the potentiality of it anyway. He didn't know how it was all going to pan out. I don't know about you, but that sounds to me like a bad day. That sounds miserable, (laughs) doesn't it? Well, Paul tells us how, how he thought like that. He says, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. He does not speak to them as someone who is needy. Why? Because I've learned, he says, to be content in every state. There's something you should mark down. Whether you're taking notes or not, you need to note it. Contentment is learned. It is learned. It does not come prepackaged at salvation. You must learn it. I must learn it. Paul had to learn it. Your kids have to learn it. And it really takes time, and it takes truth, and it takes trial. Those three T's time and truth. And trial. When you, over a period of time, go through a number of trials and then you take the truth of God and you begin to learn to apply it to your life, to to appropriate it by faith, you will, in fact, grow in contentment. But it's going to take some discipline to learn it. It's interesting, this word is a word that 
for contentment, it's a word that technically means self-sufficient. And normally we frown on that kind of thing, right? And Paul means it here in the right sort of way. Paul has blatantly denied his own self-sufficiency. In 2 Corinthians 3, 5, for example, he says, not that we are sufficient of ourselves, right? He asks the question, who is sufficient for these things? Well, not that we're sufficient for ourselves. Our sufficiency, he said, is from God. I, I like the thought of one lexicon, said it this way, Paul is content in the sense of being satisfied living out of God's content. Think of it. Content in the sense of living out of God's content, his fullness. In in other words, Paul might say, I am self-sufficient because I live out of Christ's sufficiency. Christ has supplied every one of my needs. He is there for me. I am not a needy man. Paul's so unlike us, right? He he is not here challenging God. He is not here in the most difficult of circumstances blaming God or questioning his love or accusing him of, of not being good. He's submitted and he's at rest, and he's content. Paul understood full well that Jesus is Lord, and as Lord, he is Lord over circumstances. There was nothing that came Paul's way that was apart from God. He trusted in the sovereignty of God. He trusted in the goodness of God. He trusted in the love of God. He was contented and convinced of the tender love and goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he had learned that, and that's important for us to understand. He had learned it. He grew in it. We should be growing in it. Paul elaborates in verse 12. He says, I know how to get along with humble means. That that word humble just means lowly. I, I know what it is to be destitute, frankly. He says in another passage in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 11 that he knew what it was to be destitute. He knew what it was to have nothing. He says, I know how to get along with humble means and I also know how to live in prosperity. You remember that the Apostle Paul had grown up with wealth and privilege and he was a good student in Phariseeism and he had become a man of great status, really, among his countrymen. He spoke about all of that in chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. He was born right, he behaved right, you remember all that stuff. And he said all of that led me to to a self-righteousness that needed to die. I needed to abandon it. I needed to look at it and recognize that it was just dung. And I needed instead to pursue the righteousness which is found in Christ. You also know enough about the apostle's life to remember that great passage in 2 Corinthians 11 where he says he foolishly needed to boast a little bit about how hard his life had been because the, the super apostles, the false teachers had come into Corinth and they were, they were demeaning Paul and they were saying that Paul was in it for all kinds of wrong motivations and Paul says, no, no, you know how much I've suffered for Christ and in this ministry and on your behalf. 
He said he was destitute. He said he had been naked. He said he was hungry. And that's just the point. The tide could rise or fall. He could walk out in the morning. It could be bright and sunny or it could be dark and cloudy. It could be a fat year or a lean year. It didn't matter to him. Whether his belly was empty or his belly was full, the pendulum of providence swings in life, and most of you are old enough to to know that. Things are not often what you expect, and you know that when times are good, you're thinking about already, right, for the, the, the next thing down the pike, and Money comes and money's go, money goes, jobs come, jobs go. Marriages have seasons of delight and ease and other seasons which are challenging. We know this. Children are the greatest joy you've ever experienced and then the deepest burden of your heart. Paul says that's the way it is in this life and that by the will of God and that for our good, and that for his glory. And what I've learned in the midst of all of this is how to live in a a contented way. Paul had learned to trust the good hand of God in any and every circumstance, he says. Any and every. You think of any particular, and you can think of every, all of them all together, whatever the case. Paul knew that the Lord was working all things together for good. Paul had learned to seek first the kingdom of heaven and then trust God for the rest. Paul had learned to live with little. You remember he says to Timothy, with food and covering we will be content. Beloved, do we think that way? Part of the reason for our discontentment is we've never come to terms. We're just rich. And so we're grumpy with God when he takes away our creature comforts. To, to Timothy, he says, with food and covering, we'll be content. We brought nothing into the world. We're not taking anything out of the world. I, I love what he says to the Corinthians. He says, we're, we're those who use the world, but we do not make full use of it. You get that? As believers, we intentionally discipline our lives to lead a paired life. We're not trying to get the next and the newest and the seemingly necessary, no. We live in such a way as to pursue the kingdom of heaven. We have a goal, and that is to lead lives that are honoring to Christ, to preach Christ, and we long to see Christ return that his kingdom might be established fully and finally. What, what, a, what a joy that day will be. We're not those. I, I remember when I first got into backpacking, I didn't believe them, by the way. Somebody at REI said to me, look, you're a tall guy, but when you buy a backpack, you want to buy the smallest thing you can get by with. My thinking was buy the bigger pack. You're a big guy. You can carry more. You need more. Get a big pack. He says, you'll stuff it full of stuff, and you'll be regretting it every step of the way. I bought the big pack. (laughs) After that trip, I bought a second pack. And it's smaller because the backpacker is somebody who lives a paired life. He lives in such a way as to take what is necessary for the accomplishment of his goals. So it is for us in Christ. 
That is a radically different mentality than the world. We make use of the world. We don't make full use of it. Paul had learned to expect suffering because he knew full well that Christ had suffered, leaving him an example to follow in his footsteps. Paul had learned to set his mind on the things above and dwell on those things which are true and honorable and right and pure and lovely of good repute, those things that are excellent, those things that are worthy of praise. Paul had learned how to give thanks in everything. Paul had learned that God would surely supply all his needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And Paul had learned that in this world he would have tribulation Those are just biblical expectations. We're not seeking to avoid that. We realize that there there will be persecution and there will be suffering for everyone and anyone who seeks to live godly in Christ Jesus. Those are just facts. Paul had learned these things. He had meditated on these things. He had appropriated them such that they were the, the very thing that enabled him in the midst of this most profound trial facing death to be at ease and to be content in his God. Boy, these things are convicting, aren't they? When we think how quickly we get frustrated with the minutia of life, how quickly we lose our composure. Beloved, I could sum it up in one sentence. Paul has Christ, and if you have Christ, you have everything. If you have Christ, you have everything. Let's take a momentary breather and look over at Hebrews chapter 13. I want you to see this principle in a couple other places. Hebrews 13 and verse 5. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being what? Being content with what you have. Now what's interesting is when he says this, he says, look, you need... Beware of what's going on in your heart as you think about the material universe and what you have and don't have. He says, recognize that what God has given you, you're to be content with, you're to be grateful for. But I want you to note in particular, not just this statement about contentment, but look at what he leans upon when he says, be content with what you have. Be content with what you have, why? Because he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. What's he saying? You can be content with your material station in life. Because if you have Christ, it doesn't matter. Christ is everything. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. So that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? You see it? Christ is our confidence. He is our hope. He is our life. 
He is the reason we can live contentedly. Flip to the left to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And verse 17. Paul, again, by the Holy Spirit, says, instruct those who are rich in this present world. You got that? They have a lot. Not to be conceited, proud, independent, self-sufficient, thinking that their money came to them because of their prowess, their, their business acumen. No, he says, tell them not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. That's not where hope is found. You fix your hope on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Do you see what he's saying? You have the Lord. You fix your hope in him. You be delighted in him. Now, the fact is, our God is good, and he gives us an abundance on top of himself. But we dare not fixate on the gifts and forget the giver. That's an empty hole. You're satisfied in God. Your hope is in God. He is the God who gives us all things to enjoy. That's why Paul could look at that money bag from the Philippians and say, this is from the hand of God through the Philippians. He says, you instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works. Use that money for good ends. Store up your treasure in heaven. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, and I love this, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. There is no life in material. Life indeed is found in having the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, let me just take this opportunity to, t- to tell you, if you're looking to suck life, if you're trying to make lemonade out of, out of the orange that is this, this world, you'll, you'll never make it. There is no life in the pursuit of, of, of wealth. There is no life in the pursuit of sensual pleasure. Life is found in Christ. That's why Paul's content. And the Lord Jesus Christ calls you to to forsake that pursuit of satisfaction of self. Die to yourself. Forsake your satisfaction in the things of the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. Pursue those things in him and you will find what you're looking for. This world is a cul-de-sac if you're looking for pleasure. To find true pleasure, to find eternal life, to find genuine contentment, you must come to Christ alone. Well, we need to move on. All sufficiency is found in Christ. This is the secret to contentment. I want you to see thirdly, Paul's strength and sufficiency revealed. Paul's strength and sufficiency revealed. And we see that in verse 13. What enabled Paul to live contentedly in any circumstance? The answer to that question is it was the supernatural power of Christ that was the dynamic of Paul's life. Look at verse 13, a verse most of you already have memorized. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In the Greek, all things is right up front. For all things I have strength in the one strengthening me. 
I can endure. I can overcome. I can live faithfully. I can live contentedly in Christ no matter my circumstances. Paul could never do it, of course, in his own strength. But Paul could do it in Christ. And beloved, you can do it in Christ. That's really what you should take away from this. He's not boasting in his own sufficiency, is he? When he says, I can, I can, I can. He can, why? Because Christ is the, is the one who works mightily within him. He's boasting in Christ. Now my hope is that you can take this and understand what Paul was saying in context. This verse has been so misused. Paul had never read Norman Vincent Peale. This was no self-help mantra. This was not offered by Paul so that you uh, might realize every last dream you have for success. I was reflecting on this and remembering, this may amaze you, but the when I was in high school here locally, down in the training room, they had these posters up. I, interesting, I, I professed Christ in high school. I think I was a believer. And I never questioned the fact that there were these posters up down in the, in the, in the, in the training room. There was one I recall that was a picture of a football player with his helmet in his hand sitting on the bench. And the football player is thinking to himself, I quit. And in the background was a cross and the words of whoever made the poster, <laughs> speaking for Jesus, saying, I didn't. Right? It was wild to me in a public school that that was still up in the, in the mid-80s. Well, there was another one in there that had a basketball player. In the huddle, also on the bench, not, not dejected yet, but in the background you could see the scoreboard and they were, they were down by a point with three seconds left. And the guy's thinking to himself, I can't do this. But in the background were the words here of Paul, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Is that the point of this passage that you can hit the big bucket? or at least a free throw and send it into overtime, right? Paul is not saying that he can hit the winning bucket. Think of it for just a second. Apparently, he couldn't free himself from house arrest and from the chains that held him. Apparently, he couldn't get rid by his own testimony of that pesky thorn in the flesh, though he prayed again and again. In fact, I want you to turn to one more passage with me. Let's just go back there to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll pick up in verse 9. Paul said in verse 8, he implored the Lord, he prayed to the Lord, he begged the Lord three times that this thorn might leave him. Paul gives us the Lord's response. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Did you catch that? Sufficiency. My grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected 
in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I'm well content. There's our word again. I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. Friends, just look at the list again and put yourself there. Insults, distresses, persecutions, difficulties. Are you content in those circumstances? And remember what I said earlier, Paul never factored Christ out of the equation, did he? Notice what he says, that all of those things, insults, distresses, persecutions, difficulties, why did they come to him? It says right there, for Christ's sake. Well, then when I'm weak, it's then that I'm strong. It's It's then that I'm strong because Christ is strong in me. Beloved, you have all the resources you will ever need to walk down the path that God has called you. As you go through life and you encounter the variety of circumstances, good, bad, in the middle, somewhere, and that's really the point, everything between abasement and abundance, everything in there that will come your way, you can in fact walk in a manner worthy of your calling and honor the Lord if you will look contentedly to the Savior who will see you through it. There will be times when the sailing will be easy, and Paul says rejoice. And there will be times when that storm is brutal, and it is tearing at your sails, and Paul says rejoice. Contentment in either one. You can learn this, he says. Whatever circumstances you find yourself, you can rejoice and you can embrace the will of God with contentment. This world knows some measure of contentment in spurts as they get what they want, and that seems to be a pleasing day. But we all know, having been once one of them, that that contentment doesn't last very long, does it? The new toy you got at Christmas that just thrilled your heart and made you content for two days ends up in the bottom of the toy box by week two and you're waiting for next Christmas to get your next burst, or maybe your birthday. That's not what Paul is speaking about here. God's people are continually putting Christ on display by leading a contented life, especially when it's hard. No complaint, no resentment, no bitterness, no anxiety. Paul just says, Philippians, how thankful I am for your expression of love. It reminds me of Christ's love for me. He has ministered to me through your gift, and I am rejoicing in the fellowship that we share in the gospel. And this great kindness on your part, listen, I don't, I don't need it, though I'm grateful for it. It's not about the money. I am fully satisfied and fully strengthened in my Savior who mightily works within me, I have everything I need. Jeremiah Burroughs, a Puritan, wrote a book entitled The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, a great book and very worth reading. He says this, quote, here's his his parting counsel. So be satisfied 
and quiet. Be contented with your contentment. I lack certain things that others have, but blessed be God that I have a contented heart which others have not. And I would ask you, do you have this contentment? Have you come to a place of faith in your life where you know, you know that God has ordered your circumstances, whatever they are, abundant or abased, humbled or exalted, pleasant or painful? Have you come to the place of knowing that that thing has passed through the hand of God? Secondly, have you come to a place of trust where you trust in his goodness? You realize even the hard things are for your good. And have you come to a place where Christ is so valuable to you that you can sing in good conscience? You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. To Timothy, Paul wrote these words, godliness with contentment is a means of great gain. Do you want gain in this life? You must pursue godliness and contentment. And this is God's gift to you, joy and peace and contentment in Christ. The gift is not a change of your circumstances. The gift is not more money in your account. All of those things are secondary at best. The gift is Christ and contentment in him and him alone. He is the indescribable gift. And if you have him and you trust him and you hope in him, then you can smile on your circumstances, whatever they may be. Let's pray as the music team comes forward. Our Lord, we thank you this morning for this great reminder that, Lord, you are life, you are peace, you are hope. You are the one who is our ballast in life and you keep us steady even in the midst of storms. And Lord, we will encounter tribulation in this world. As we've noted again and again, there will be times that are up and times that are down. There will be peaks and there will be valleys. There will be trials. But Lord, we ask that in the midst of all of that, that we would hold those things in this world loosely, that we might cling to Christ. That we would cling to Christ. And Lord, that you would forgive us for our dissatisfied and covetous hearts which want Christ and the world. Lord, keep us from that. To pursue the world and its lusts is to be at enmity with you, and we would never be that. Lord, you have loved us with an everlasting love. And you led your people of old out into the desert for the very purpose of teaching them that their sufficiency is in you. Lord, so it is when we encounter difficulty in this life. Forgive us for our complaint. Forgive us for our our bitterness, Lord, for resentment that we have indulged toward one another and toward you. Forgive us for those things. Lord, help us always to look to you and to give thanks to you for all. For you are sovereign and you are good and all things are for our good and for your glory. We trust you and we love you. Help us, Lord, to trust you and to love you. In Christ's name, amen. Our Lord, you are our hope and our stay, our strength, our stronghold, our rock of refuge. You are never failing 
and our hearts know it well. We've proved you over and over. Lord, you are faithful, faithful to your people, faithful to your purposes. By your grace, we have placed our trust in you. And therefore, Lord, we are your children, adopted and precious. You've loved us with an everlasting love. May we go in that confidence and with gladness in our hearts. Amen.